0: Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
1: And I'm Jim Elliott.
0: And today on the program, we are joined by Dave Hitz. Hello, Dave. Hi. So Dave Hitz co-founded NetApp, a Silicon Valley data management company, in 1992. He's played many roles there, including programmer, evangelist, architect, VP of engineering, mascot, strategist, cheerleader, and coach. I want to hear more about that. Before we dive into that, we'll give a little bit more of the background relative to Shakespeare. Dave co-founded Play On, which is translating all of Shakespeare's plays into performable 21st century English. It's been called the single largest literary translation project since the King James Bible. And also, incidentally, it's been called, quote, a waste of money and talent. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I believe that was Jim Shapiro's op ed in the New York Times.
0: <laughs> yeah, we did we talked to we talked to him, and he did mention play on. We also talked to some our listeners'll will, will perhaps remember that we've also talked to some of the collaborators in the play on project in the past, and we're, we're looking forward to digging into it further now that some time has passed, and these projects are a lot further on in development, but um, that's all to come in this interview. And uh, what we should say at this point is, welcome, Dave. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you so much. I'm excited about it.
0: Dave, you, you say you started off your career as a self-proclaimed evangelist in Silicon Valley. What, what's that all about?
2: Um, so I, I, as, when I started my career, I really had two skills. One of them was programming. Um, It turns out I'm bad at some things and good at others. Programming is one of the things I'm good at. And also just telling people about what I was doing. So I I did a startup called NetApp, which you've most likely never heard of. We do the the data storage that if you file your taxes electronically through the IRS, it lands on gear we sold them. So like it's that sort of thing. Um, All the special effects for Lord of the Rings were were stored on our systems. So, you know, cool stuff in the world. Data's a big deal these days. So, I started that way as uh, as a programmer and an evangelist, tell people the story of our stuff, and eventually moved into management, uh, had hundreds of people working for me, and then eventually figured out I didn't like that. so I got out of that and more into uh, strategic roles so that's my that's my career side. the Shakespeare side I've been going to see Shakespeare play since I was a little kid. I mean my parents took me down in san diego to i forget which one but one of the ones where you go out on grass and the kids run around and there's guys in tights on the stage and it was just like ever since i was a little kid a shakespeare was a fun thing so all, all the way through to going to the oregon shakespeare festival that's probably where i've seen uh, the most shakespeare since 1982 so you know i've been going there for ages as well so it's just always been a part of my life in some form
0: how did you make the leap then to becoming a producer
2: boy a producer what a big word um <laughs> what i will tell you is it it started as a fantasy here's what i noticed when i go see shakespeare plays and i'm not a shakespeare scholar i'm i'm the guy in the bottom 50% of the audience right what i what i figured out is if i don't do the homework i really don't enjoy myself if i do the homework and the homework could be you know reading the plays out loud with friends that takes a while but if you have the time um, reading the footnotes—that's the most painful. Even just getting a no fear Shakespeare. Like if I do the homework, then I enjoy the productions. And if I don't do the homework, I'm just like blah blah blah. I just—I'm one of those people that struggles with the language.
1: Uh, I would like to take a moment to just ask you about the homework exactly. Because um, is it the stories that you're not following, or is it just that you get like you get lost in the language and in the in, uh, of Shakespeare?
2: What I find is a lot of Shakespeare plays have plot pivots, and there's a teeny bit of language that indicates a plot pivot, like, they're friends, they're friends, they're friends, they're enemies. Like, what just happened? They're enemies, they're enemies, they're enemies, they're friends. What just happened? <laughs> and if, if I read the no fear, then I can let go of the concern about, like, I'm just confused. I, I don't get it. And, and then I can listen to the language, I can watch the pageantry, you know, if it's a, if it's a good production. I can just enjoy it, Whereas if I don't, there's just too much stuff I feel like I, I don't understand the characters, I don't get why I should care about them, like the plot. Not every play does that. And, and a play that you know, Romeo and Juliet, they're going to love each other, their families hate each other, okay, they're going to kill themselves. Like, you know, if you, one that you know. But even with those, I find, for me, the easiest, the fastest homework is, well, these days it's a play on play. If I can get a hold of the the translation, but a no fear is fine. It, it, the no fear is not about the language. The no fear just smooths out all the bumps so that I I know what's happening. I read it the day before. Then scene by scene, it's like yeah yeah yeah, I've got it. My brain and and that that loosens me up to to just ex- enjoy the whole experience.
0: Well, the kind of homework that you're talking about sounds like more than just a casual investment. I'm not, I'm not sure that the average uh. uh playgoer is is going to take the step of reading the play with the footnotes beforehand and or even reading it aloud with friends that puts you i think in in the realm of shakespeare super fandom
2: i would say (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i but i've never you know i think shakespearean english is a language you can learn i think it's it's probably closer than spanish and portuguese but i think it's probably farther from present-day english than say uh, Norwegian and Danish which are very close and and some people have just learned that language and the people who have uh, You know, it's a struggle because we call both of them English and I think a lot of the people who've learned that language don't realize the extent to which regular folks uh, Struggle with it, you know and just get confused and then don't go to another Shakespeare play, you, you know Yeah, uh, so we lose them which is such a shame. I mean his plays are so awesome One of the things that I realized, I I hadn't really understood this, but Shakespeare is the most translated author behind God. So the the Bible's been translated more, but Shakespeare's number two. And that tells me something interesting, because a lot of people will say, oh, Shakespeare's just about the words. How, How could you contemplate changing the words? He's a poet. It's just the words. If it was just the words, it wouldn't have been translated into... French, German, Spanish, Portuguese, Japanese, like almost any language. It, it turns out the plots are really good too. And the characters are, are really good too. So I would never tell people don't go to the original. And, I, and I, I hope that our project can be a pathway that people say, wow, I'd like to learn that language. I mean, I've had people tell me they went and learned Russian because they love Chekhov, right? I mean, I mean, that's a rare person that does that, but, uh, but Shakespearean English is easier.
0: How on earth does it go from that you have an idea that maybe it would be great to have modern English translations of, of Shakespeare's texts to actually saying, okay, this is something we're going to do, and, and this is how we're going to go about it?
2: Well, the magic is a woman named Louis Dupit, who's the executive director of Play On, which is an independent 501c. Now, we, we split apart from uh, Oregon Shakespeare, mostly for reasons having to do with things like negotiating with actors' equity <laughs> you know, for the, for the uh, festival that we just performed. Um, so I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Like I said, I've been going there for years. And I said, hey, I just have this fantasy. I would love once in my life to hear Shakespeare in my native language, present day English. And the first time I went, the artistic director was like, yeah, not my thing, which is fine, right? Everybody gets to choose what, what they're interested in. But I went a number of years later uh, we got a new artistic director named Bill Roush, and I said the same thing to him, and it turned out he had spent part of his career doing productions of Shakespeare in small towns, uh, often rural towns, and he, he used community actors, and they would work together, like, how can we understand this? And and so he was very familiar with the idea of wrestling with the language and helping people, and so he said, that's really interesting, why don't you come back, and my brother and I were, were uh, went back and talked with Bill and Louis Duthit, who was the head dramaturg at OSF at the time, and she got very interesting. At, interested at first, she was skeptical, and then she said, "Well, what does this mean?" And we did *Time and of Athens* first. We did *Time and of Athens* because that's nobody's favorite play.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's all when the key, when you do the whole canon, like it's *Time* and it's last, right. and um, and so we did that. And in fact, we got it all the way to a production at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, which is amazing. I had no idea. It was the largest arts donation in the history of the U.S. when it was made. It's like a square mile with lakes and swans yeah. and two enormous theaters. Ah, man, I was blown away. Yeah, and uh, they, they did a production of Time and of Athens. They did our translation as the closing of their canon. And the audience loved it. People were just so excited to just be able to hear it. And uh, so we yeah. did. We did the first one, and it was good. We did um, Ellen McLaughlin's Pericles was the second one. Um, I love that play. I I know not everyone has it in their favorites list, but every time I hear it, it's moving up in my appreciation. Uh, And we had a production of that in Orlando. And I was kind of frustrated with how long it was taking, and I was brainstorming with Louis about, you know, is there some way to do this faster? Because it was taking, like, three years per and a couple. And Louis came back, and... Her idea, she said, Dave, I've been the bottleneck. I've been the dramaturg for all the ones we've done. I think we should fire off in parallel, uh, a separate translator for every play, a separate dramaturg for every play, and do them all at once. And so I'd like to, I'd like to get all thirty-nine done in three years. And I'll tell you, I had two immediate reactions. Immediate reaction number one was, "You are effing crazy! <laughs> like, there's no way." And reaction number two was, but so what's the harm? Maybe we get half of them. Like, that would be awesome, and we'd have half. And I will tell you, Louie pulled it off. I believe that she cashed in a lifetime of favors. You know, she called people up, and I've talked to a lot of the translators, and they said, you know, if it was anybody but Louie, I learned such interesting things from the translators. So Kenneth Cavender taught me this phrase. He said... Translations are like lovers. The beautiful ones are not faithful, and the faithful ones are not beautiful.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's Very, an awesome metaphor. And
2: that's <laughs> as, you wrestle, as you wrestle, and I don't want to get into the whole sexism of that statement, mm-hmm. but as you wrestle with the translation, do you simplify and change? Or simplify is the wrong word, but. Because I hope these things come out as complicated works of art that, that reflect Shakespeare's original complicated ideas. But, but do you make a change in the language that possibly isn't as beautiful as Shakespeare's original words. And in fact, realistically, I think we've hired good poets, but to argue that you're doing it better than Shakespeare's original words, like that's a hell of a claim, right?
0: Okay, so when we first heard about Shakespeare play on, I think we heard about it through some of our guests that we were talking to. And at, and there was definitely some critical response to it when it was first announced. And we were definitely prepared to be skeptical at first. But that having been said, what are some of the the virulent reactions that you've received to the project so far?
2: Um, well, let me talk about what we just experienced in the festival, because we did a festival where, where we just performed 39 readings of all 39 plays that Shakespeare might have written. I, I know the canon is more typically 37 or 36, um, but we figured while we're desecrating the bard, we <laughs> might as well desecrate everything he might have wrote. Um, I will tell you, the audience reaction... He has been almost uniformly positive. Uh, We had one guy who started out, and he had a dog-eared copy of the original text of the play we had just seen, and he said, as a portfolio purist, I find myself somewhat surprised to have liked this. The, uh, The single biggest objection we got, one particular woman was frustrated. Most of our plays didn't, playwrights didn't choose to do this, but one translator threw in quite a few F-bombs. Um, she was actually from Australia, where I think an F-bomb is roughly equivalent to gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we did get the feedback from one person in the audience who said, yeah, you know, I don't really like that. Are the rest of them going to be like that? It's like, no, it turns out the rest of them aren't going to be like that. People, people were, you know, one of the common comments was that it's, it still felt like Shakespeare. It still sounded like Shakespeare, there, there are a few places where translators made the decision to use modern words, and I, I was interested in how my, I reacted to that. Some people just hated any modern word. What I figured out was they bothered me, and there were only a handful, they bothered me if they referred to nouns in the play. So in one particular place, uh, people were going from one city to another, and one of the characters said, well, we have to catch the bus. And my brain went, boing! In another play, it was metaphorical, and a woman was described as having a supersonic mouth. That one didn't bother me. I think it's different for Brutus to cut Shakespeare with a laser-sharp knife than for Brutus to cut Shakespeare with a laser.
1: Right. Oh, absolutely.
2: One of the, one of the things that's so wonderful about having had a, a whole set of, of different translators take a run at this is we're learning a lot about what works, what doesn't work, what audiences like, what they don't like, and um, I, you know the the next generation of translators can take that.
0: Well, all of that having been said, somebody. Uh, presumably, somebody has to carry a torch for the integrity of the original work and for keeping the beauty of the language itself alive and and for, you know, yes, educating the audience. Um, So what do you say to those who object to the, quote, dumbing down of Shakespeare's
2: language in the translations? Um, Well, I would say see a couple of them. They are not dumbed down. Uh, In the talkbacks that we've had after the productions, what I find so interesting is some of the talk facts are about the translation and the translation process. Other of the talk facts, people are just like, I want to dig into the topic of the play. Uh, I'll tell you one in particular, The Merchant of Venice, mm-hmm. when that language is just clear through, oh my God, it's wrenching. It seemed so racist and so horrible. And yet, it, it, because the people were so mean to Shylock, it almost made him more sympathetic as a character. Here's an observation. Every translation is a new work of art. There's nothing stopping anybody from translating Moliere or the Greek plays into whatever damn thing they want, right? And nobody's protecting the integrity of the translation. That, every, every artist gets to create the work of art they want. Now, it may be a horrible work of art that nobody wants to see, right? Time will tell. And so I don't see that we've created the new canon. There were some defenders of of the play on Project that were, uh, you know, the the far end of it, this was a Wall Street Journal op-ed, well, those original plays are pretty crufty, it's about time we retired them, thank God somebody's doing the replacements, like, no, 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 when you write, when a translator does a translation of Moliere, the original Moliere play is sitting there just fine, thank you very much, right?
1: That leads me to this question, which is, what is the end game for the play on project? You clearly don't want to replace Shakespeare. So where do you see play the play on plays um, residing in the, in the culture of the theater?
2: Um, here's my ultimate fantasy. If you go see a, a translation, a play that's in translation, check out the playbill. Often the director will have some notes about, well, the last time we performed this Chekhov play, we used this 1972 translation by so-and-so, but that one was feeling a little dated, and plus it was more poetic, and we really wanted to dig into the political issues, and so therefore we choose this one from 2003. What I would like is for there to be a competing ecosystem of, of translators wrestling with Shakespeare so that when a director does a production, you can see in the playbill I wanted to use the original Shakespeare because that's I really wanted to focus on the language and the beauty of the language and another director will say I am so interested in today's political issues around legislating morality and so I wanted the translation of measure for measure because I wanted those ideas to pop. You know that that's what happens with every major playwright every 10 or 20 years another translator comes along and says it's time for another one and I can do better. And that's great. And they make their works of art and sometimes the new one shines and sometimes it doesn't. That's my fantasy. And it's not the play on project itself, but that PlayOn launched this different way of thinking about Shakespeare that, that gives more options and more accessibility. Will the collected works be available in print form at some point? Yeah, we're definitely working on that. We, um, so here's something that was interesting to me. I come from Silicon Valley and when you pay somebody to write something, at the end of it you get to own it yourself but in the theater world what's much more common is you do a commission and you pay somebody to write something and then at the end the playwright owns it the uh, the translator so we now have I think it's 36 because a few people did uh, multiple plays but um, we now have 36 translators out there each with their own play and that's a good thing because they've all got buddies directors and theater companies that they hang out with to try and get productions because I, I we've had a number of productions and they're so fun. Um, so, but, uh, but one of the things we did get as part of the commissioning project was the rights to publish. And so we, we haven't figured out the exact form. Do you want one giant book or a collection of little books or both? I, you know, I think publication will be one of the next things.
1: Perhaps some of the reactions are, well, you're not going to replace Shakespeare. Shakespeare's you can't touch Shakespeare. You know, that kind of feeling that maybe, uh, Shakespeare will be put on the shelf forever. But I don't think that'll ever happen.
2: You know, one of the things that's interesting to me as I've gotten into this project is I've learned how much every theater production of Shakespeare changes Shakespeare. The amount of Shakespeare that they leave on the cutting room floor Mm -hmm. is incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of it, a lot of it is left on the cutting room floor because it's just too hard to understand. And so at some point I wonder... Is it more respectful to Shakespeare to throw half of a play away, or is it more respectful to try and resurrect it? Right. And you can make a case for either one, but, uh, you know, massive... Oh, the other thing a lot of people do is they'll substitute words, but only words that existed in Shakespeare's exact corpus, so words that he used in another play. Mm-hmm. And um, and that work often is done by, by the actors and dramaturgs who are great people, but gosh, if someone's going to do that, wouldn't you rather it was a poet who spent, in some cases, we've had people wrestling with these things for years as opposed to people in the last-minute crunch before a play trying to whip something up. I don't like it, we're respecting the bard a lot.
1: Yeah, I don't get a disrespect. Um, but I do, I do. I mean, it might be worse, since we are a performative podcast, I just want to look at a, just a little, maybe two-line section of the King Lear, uh, translation that you sent us. Sure. And I just want to talk about that for a second. Um, and the lines are, let me see if I can read them. Um, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness defend you from seasons such as these? That's the original Shakespeare. And the translation is with no roof over your heads, no fat on your ribs and only rags for clothing. How will you defend yourselves against such weather? So, those are the two differences. Those are the two. That's the translation. Right. Now, you're saying the same thing, and I I get it, but I would argue that when I hear your looped and windowed raggedness, I might be thrown for a second, but if I image that, if I take that into my head and I image it, it's a really beautiful metaphor, and it's a lovely, and there's lovely sounds that are being combined that are sort of caressing the eardrums, versus, and only rags for clothing. Now, I
2: understand the it. The beautiful ones are not faithful, and the faithful right. yeah, ones the are not show. beautiful. Is that right what you're pressing on? I, not, well, no, I'm,
1: not, I'm actually not pressing on the beauty of the language. Actually, that's not at all what I'm pressing on. The, pressing image, on
2: the imagery you get. The Im,
1: but the imagery and the combination of the imagery and the effect of the sounds of spoken English on what you're saying. Right, yeah, uh,
2: and that's part of the beauty. It's not just the language, it's the whole experience it's 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 what happens in your brain when you read that or hear it um
1: yeah, and and I think that there it's a visceral there's a visceral response to to images like that that I hope would not be lost completely
2: well, and that's why thank goodness the Shakespeare will be just fine you, you right. know it, there it is um what's here's the effect that it has on my brain. When I get to a place like that there's a big difference between reading and attending a play. Mm-hmm. In reading I can say whoa what does that mean and it can flower in my head and and that's fun. If that happens in a play the effect is to erase the following lines because I'm contemplating this one it's not it's it's coming at me at, at lifetime speed you know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and What's interesting is the lines that come immediately after this. What he just said is, oh, you poor people, how do you deal with this pelting rain when you've got no house and no clothes and you're hungry? What he says right after this is, oh, I have taken too little care of this. Take physic, pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou may shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. What does that mean if you're just contemplating what looped and windowed meant. And it's a very, very important concept because what he's saying is, I didn't do a good job as your king. What he's saying is, oh, when I was king, I should have done more for you. It would have, it would do you good, men who live in luxury, to walk in the shoes of the poor and downtrodden so that you can unburden yourself with the wealth that you do not need and show the world that heaven can be fair. That... That is a very deep self-reflection on his success or failure as a king. And, and I would argue so. So the translation is from take physic, pomp. Take physic means apply medicine to yourself. Pomp means a, a royal guy, an elite guy. The translation being it would do you good, men who live in luxury. That when that stuff is coming at you in lifetime speed, I think there's very few people who speak Shakespearean English so well that they can process that line after line after line and really get the meaning. And um, You'd be
1: exhausted, right? <laughs> it,
2: it's, it, it's beautiful, and so what do you do with that? How do you deal with that conflict? And I think the answer is you have to have both.
0: I really sympathize with that point of view, Dave. I've had that experience so many times, and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. It's a, kind of a difference between being Letting the stream of thought carry you all the way down to its conclusion, or, or being um, you know captured for a while in the eddies and the whirlpools along the way, and maybe maybe missing what what follows which is which makes it fun to to see a play again and again because you 're always catching new things that you missed previously, maybe for just that reason
2: you know let me tell you something that has stood out for me of this experience, having just seen. Uh, all the plays. Shakespeare is so funny. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Even, even plays that you think of as serious, heavy duty plays, there'll be parts that it's, you just laugh. Um, one, one of the people I was seeing a play with made it, uh, said it was like Quentin Tarantino. You know, some of his stuff is just so over the top, crazy and wild, that you're just like, Oh my God. (laughs) I will say Titus Andronicus was yeah. like that. Yeah, and Titus
1: Andronicus, certain parts of Richard III.
2: The contrast of the laughter and the not laughter, so at the very end of Titus Andronicus, I don't want to spoil this for anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, you know, he's, his daughter's had her hands cut off and her tongue cut out, and she's been raped, but she's still there, and Titus has served up the sons that did this to their mom and dad, and the play, it's like three lines of Shakespeare, Titus kills so-and-so. Two more lines of Shakespeare, so-and-so, other person kills another guy at the dinner table. It's just a train wreck. And and then comes the point where Titus asks the king, the, the, the father of the two sons that did the killing, what would you do if you had a child and, and she was horribly molested, raped, and how would you deal with... Disfigured. How would you deal with that? And the king said, I, "I I would kill her to put her out of her misery." And at that point, Titus takes his dagger and kills his daughter. And so we were laughing, 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 and the whole shit theater just like shut down. Like, whoa! That now, now it's not funny anymore. I think the comedy, the heightening of the comedy, intensifies the tragedy. And if you're not getting the jokes. I, I think it, it, Shakespeare <laughs> is whipping you up and whipping you down. It's back and forth. Oh, so the no comedy doubt. can be such an important part also of the tragedies. Um, uh, what a fun project this has been. I, yeah. I'm just blown away with what's all in my head right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, well, I mean, your enthusiasm is absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, and certainly, you know, just to go back to the point you just made, uh, Shakespeare puts clowns after death a lot. and clowns are very difficult to understand um, in Shakespeare they're very you know that's where you get really dense language but um so yes so this is you know your enthusiasm is terrific um you still have skeptics you're about to go see um polishing Shakespeare which is uh one of your skeptics responses to your project um it'll be interesting to hear your reactions uh to his his production
2: well I've read the script um Mm -hmm. so it turns out that Brian, uh, Brian Dykstra is the author of Polishing Shakespeare. His wife, Margaret, is friends with Doug Langworthy. I remember I told the story earlier about him doing the translations from German iambic pentameter and, and now the Henry Sixes. And so she came in, and uh, and we got to chatting. And she's like, oh, my God, my husband wrote this play. You're the evil guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, oh, that's cool. I want to meet him. So, so they came in. In fact, we... We did an experiment, the opening night of our, 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 the reading of our Much Ado About Nothing was the night before the opening of Much Ado About Nothing at Shakespeare in the Park. So I invited Brian and his wife to, uh, to come along and we saw both of those back to back, first our reading and then the one in the park. And it was great seeing a reading ahead of the, of the full production as opposed to, you know, doing a No Fear Shakespeare. It was mm-hmm. awesome. And we had a lot of fun and yeah. chatted a lot. It, you yep. know, fundamentally, their view is whenever an audience doesn't understand, it's because the actors and the directors have failed the audience. Correct. And, you know, my view is, it, I don't know what acting you could do to turn take-physic-pomp into it would do you good, men who live in luxury. Like, I, I, I don't know what gestures or vocal intonation an actor could conceivably do to communicate that. um but but uh, but fine so we disagree they they think one can and i i think that there's certain things that are impossible and they can keep trying to pull it off which is great and it makes the production so much better when you do try then i can say you, you know and for the folks of us in the bottom 50 percent of the audience we will we'll, uh We'll go see the translation reading ahead of time.
0: Well, Dave, this project has certainly, from your point of view, uh, occupied you for for many years, and and you've invested in, in, an incredible amount of time and and treasure into it. What what's the biggest takeaway that that you've gotten from from working on this?
2: You know, it's my experience has grown over time. I was very excited to see the very first production, *Time and of Athens*, and you know, it turns out that's actually a really good play. It was never performed in Shakespeare's life, but Kenneth Cavender did both the translation, which is a line-by-line exercise, but also adaptation, you know, cutting scenes, moving them around, rearranging a little bit. So he did, he did the translation first and then the adaptation. Um, I just loved it. I loved it, the clarity of it. Um, the conversations that I had afterwards with people like talking about the, the play, about the meaning of the play. And and it's only grown from there. It, you know, I I, I think what I've enjoyed most is I get a lot less vitriol these days. I think there's people who like it more and people who like it less. Brian Dykstra, the conversations we had, but they weren't vitriolic at all. He had no. a different opinion than my opinion. He's got a different mental model of the best way to do some art. I've got a different model of a different way to do some art. Our art can coexist. Like I, I feel like the vitriol is mostly gone. And so I'm just excited that people are arguing about Shakespeare. Like, how cool is that? Yeah. Both the language and the man, but also the message of different plays. That They feel so timely, it, oh, a lot of them. Mm. I mean, Time out of Athens is about a really, really rich guy with a lot of political power who's wielding it with his friends. It's like, I mean, Shakespeare, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> it turns out he's a great writer. <laughs> so, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, uh, you, this you know, uh, to me, this is just about getting the ideas out. So if people can make up their own mind, but at least they can have a sense of what we're up to and why we think it makes sense.
1: That's what we're all about here at The State of
0: Shakespeare. Dave Hitz, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for spending the time to uh, be on the program today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.